There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring and will hopefully leave you truly inspired as well. My goal is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell, who have achieved something remarkable in their lives and through their story hopefully get inspired myself, perhaps inspire you too. I like to do this podcast because I like to interview people. And uh, since I stopped my radio job, I was like, you know what? I, I like interviewing people. I want to interview some people. So I started this and um, it's been going pretty well. Yeah. If uh, Judging by the feedback, I'm guessing. I mean, judging by the feedback I'm getting on Twitter, it's, it's going all right. So if you like what I'm doing here or if you don't like what I'm doing here, please tell me. I'm on Twitter at Osher Ginsberg, at O-S-H-E-R-G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G. Just let me know. If you do like this show, please take the time. Go to iTunes to subscribe. Um, There's new episodes every Monday, Australia time, every Sunday, uh, North American time. But if you really like the show, if you really like the show, please send out a tweet with a link to the podcast page telling the people who follow you what you're into. It would do me the greatest service I could dream of. Uh, I've even put a link to it. It's two clicks away from where you are right now. Go to osherginsberg.com, click podcast, scroll down to the episode that you're listening to, click the tweet button. Take you about it'll take you about 10 seconds. And it will give this so it'll give this show just that much more of a chance. If you like this show, if you want more episodes, please tweet about it with a link to the podcast page or to the iTunes subscribe page, and I'll keep making more episodes. Today, I'm talking with Yumi Steins. I've I've known Yumi since she came to work on a music TV channel I was working on back in 2000, a channel called Channel V. It was a uh, fantastically fun live television. She's continued on to have a massive and powerful and controversial media career. She's currently one half of Australia's first ever all-female breakfast radio team. She's the most wonderful mother you could ever imagine. And I've really got to thank her because she really opens up in this conversation. Like 
we got really, really deep and really, really honest. And she talks about how watching her father die when she was 18 really affected her, about what it was like to live through the firestorm that erupted over some comments that she made about a decorated military hero on television, and even how after she apologized directly to this man, and after how he graciously accepted her apology, still vicious, violent threats were made not only to her, but to her children. And it's, it's very, very intense hearing her describe it. And um, I, was, I was on the verge of tears quite often during this conversation because she, she's an amazing woman and the most loving mother. And it was very, very hard to hear. It's a very powerful conversation. I promise you, you'll get your eyes open wide to what kind of woman Yumi Steins is. She's the only woman I've ever met that gets more beautiful every single day that I see her. She's whip smart. She's very funny. And she always says what she thinks. You never have to ask twice. Whatever you think you know about Yumi Steins, you're about to get to know her a whole lot more. Let's do it. My guest this week is the Australian media personality, Yumi Steins. We talk about her beginnings being one of the only Asians in her small Victorian town, how she hitchhiked her way from Byron Bay to the Torres Strait and became a carny, her incredible attitude to motherhood and raising her young daughters, how she faced the full force of the outrage machine and how she deals with blatant sexism and racism levelled directly against her in modern Australia. This good tea? Yeah, it's perfect. What's it called again? Gem Mai Cha. So Cha is tea. Gem Mai Cha. Yeah, so Nihon Cha is like Japanese tea, green tea. Yeah, Nihon cha. it's the taste of... The wheat or whatever. No, it's the, the taste of, it's the taste of a warm night in Bondi and comfort and, <laughs> and oh, it's all going to be okay. That's why I like to drink it. <laughs> so, this is exciting. <laughs> do you have to do an intro or something? I'll do it later. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Which is okay. So how are you doing? Yeah, really good. You've got grey in your beard, I've noticed. Isn't it awesome? Mm. I've got grey in my hair too. Really? Yeah. So wisdom as well? Yeah, the Clooney's are coming through <laughs> finally. Yeah, I've had my natural hair colour for, oh, gosh, nearly three and a half years now. It's amazing. Doing this Bachelor show, people have been tweeting me old photos of when we started in Idol. Oh, my dear God. <laughs> what was that blonde tip? Yeah, and collars on the outside of my jacket. Yeah, man. It was 2003. <laughs> apparently, there were paid professionals that were their job to make sure it looked stylish, so mm-hmm. I had to trust them. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Um, so I'm really glad you could be here today because you have, and I'm really grateful you come to come and talk to me because you have such a really interesting story that I don't know if many people know Um and I'm grateful that you've come here to, to talk to me about it because a lot has been said about Yumi Steins. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, from my opinion, only about 5 to 7% of it informed. Right. You know, a lot of people make up their mind about you from just looking at you. Uh-huh. And they don't really... 
they don't know what kind of a, a woman you are. Just to like to, to, you know, you have such a remarkable story. And I don't like, know what story that you mean, but... Let me take you back to the day I met you, which mm. I don't actually remember. But I remember the... I remember around the time I first met you. It was just like, I have like, I have like, it's kind of like vague echoes of memory that pop into my brain of, of when I first met you. And I remember I'd been at Channel V for about a year and a half. Yeah, about a year and a half. And uh, it was you and it was James and it was about three other people that were the last people on a reporter search, I think. And I remember there was something about you that was just like, well, we should, she's just a tornado of a human being. <laughs> was it when I kissed Robbie Williams? That's when it was I before tipped that. me over the edge. It was before that. Mm. It was like early on when we all mm. met. When we all met well, you. I can tell you that the first day I laid eyes on you because I'd never watched cable TV, so I didn't know who you were. And you were this confident guy wearing three-quarter denim trousers. That's right. <laughs> 2000, my dear. 2000. You had a ponytail, very yeah. long, thick, dark brown hair. And I remember thinking you had a really good bone structure. <laughs> <laughs> I, did. I was like, he's really handsome in his face. And then, the, you know, that wasn't – I think that it's interesting – having watched your career for the last however many, 15 years since then, how some people put the looks first and the looks come first and that's sort of their thing and other people it's not. And I feel like in common, we, we, we for you and I, it was never about what we looked like. It was always about what we were into and you were really into music and that was always clear. You still really are into music, which sometimes I think it's like um, loving plutonium <laughs> you don't want to get too close to that stuff Some, yeah. sometimes you need to step away it can give you toxins and, yeah. and tumours and stuff I had know. to I'll talk about that later yeah yeah yeah. but also I think that day that I met you, um, you they were putting all these reporter search finalists of which I was one through hoops and one of them was they played a Backstreet Boys song and was like alright everyone get up and dance and I really had to look inside myself and think, I don't, I don't know. I know that they want me to play along and show that I can be a TV personality, but I don't think I can dance to Backstreet Boys because my soul will step out of my chest and flutter away out the window and it will die. So um, that's my first memory of you. And this is a, uh, that, that, that is the thing that I do remember the most about you. We've got it written down here. Like the, one of the first things I ever met about and knew about you and I knew what was different about it is you had absolutely no problems calling it how it was and telling it how it is. <laughs> and it was a skill that took me many, many, many years to emulate. And I tried to base my speaking from my heart mm. on the way you did it because you just spoke fearlessly what you thought. Some, well, sometimes it gets you in trouble, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure did for mm. me, yeah. But I wonder how early in your life were you that person that just it just came out of your mouth, <laughs> exactly what you were thinking? The Tourette's of How Stein. early in your life did it happen? Well, you know, Osha, I was one of four kids. I was the youngest. So, you know, when you've got older siblings, they sort of trailblaze for you and, you know, they can make the mistakes and also test the parental rules. Well, after, you know, a brother and two pretty wild sisters... I already, I already had a, a sort of a template that was pretty loose and nuts anyway. <laughs> and being the youngest, I had to push it even further. So I was sort of born like that. My parents have got these um, passport photos that they tried to do in a group to save money. So instead of having one individual passport photo for the whole family, they thought they'd get all six of us to stand against a wall and get the, the Polaroid taken and then cut up the photo. Excellent. <laughs> yes. But I was... Uh, 
I was just very excited. I couldn't keep a straight face. So there's Polaroid after Polaroid after Polaroid where you can see I've been shouted at. All right, Yumi, this one, do not make a stupid face. Nah. And then with each snap of the lens, nah. I'm just pulling face after face. I think it's just, uh, it's, like a, it's like a bad illness, you know, not being able to control yourself. <laughs> when was the first time that you went, oh, this might not be the best idea? Like, when did you first really get you into trouble, do you think? Oh. Were you a kid? When I was a kid. Because I, I should point out, it's an incredibly valuable, <laughs> it's an incredibly valuable asset, and it's something that I've always wished that I had. Well, when did you start engaging? And I want to know more about that, when you started telling people. Well, you know. I tried to do it, but uh, kind of like, you know, the guy in the gangster film that's never handled a gun before and picks it up and just accidentally shoots himself in the foot. Yeah. That, that is what I tried to do. It. And it was always in bloody interviews and I always got, just said the wrong thing to the yeah. wrong person that yeah. ended up in the wrong size typeface in the wrong bloody paper. <laughs> Ow. Oh, yeah. And then Ow. the wrong people called me going, dude, what are you talking about? Yeah. You think yeah. it's something that you attract to, that sort of, Attention, You know, I've heard a lot of people say a lot of reprehensible things that have come from a, a very dark place, but they don't get the same attention that, that you might get. I think that people want, maybe want to, want to attach ne- negativity to you sometimes, or it's fun for them to do that. Do you ever get that vibe? Like, hang on a second, I don't think I deserved that. Why did you hang me out to dry? I've had to, I've had to think about that a lot. Mm. In, as I'm sure you have um, but we'll, we'll get to that but one thing that I do remember about you very much is that you were this just super beautiful Asian girl with amazing hair so much hair and you had this really interesting story you were from Melbourne but you'd, you'd grown up in Swan Hill which I don't know much about country Victoria, but I'm, I'm guessing it's a bit of a fly spec. Mm, gosh, yeah. 16,000 people, I think the population was when I was there. Wow. Nothing there. Nothing there. Yeah, I grew up there. I was just talking about it the other day with my husband about how my dad decided to settle there because he was quite a sophisticated man. So your dad, if I get this right, yeah. your dad met your mum in Japan when he was over there competing in judo or studying judo he was studying in karate and judo and trying to get his black belt which back then in in australia you couldn't achieve here so late 70s so uh late 70s yeah. or mid, mid early sorry 70s actually. late 60s late yeah 60s, late sorry. 60s yeah, wow. um so to get his black belt he traveled to tokyo and got it there and, and he used to walk past my mum's house um every day to go and train so they met and she taught him a bit of Japanese and he taught her the language of love. <laughs> he said, why don't you leave this incredible city that looks like, you know, the future and come to Swan Hill. Yeah. Well, I think he did. I think back then, you know, he wanted to be, um, he was a pharmacist. So he wanted to buy a business, a pharmacy business where he was the, the main guy. You know, he was the pharmacist. And um, so he, he found this little town, but it was, it's very inland, and this is a man who loves the ocean, uh, and it was very flat, and this is a man who loved to mountaineer. So it was sort of, you know, a double fail in many ways, Swan Hill, but, but in other ways it was really uh, a, a nice place for him and my mum to settle. She was Japanese. It wasn't that long after the Second World War, and she was really embraced by the locals eventually, you know. She, did, nice. she did tell a story about, you know, she was in the local equivalent of the Woolies or the, the Coles, and everybody stopped 
what they were doing to stare at her because they'd never seen an Asian lady before. And this is, you know, my mother's lifetime just before my, my brother was born. So I can't imagine what that would have felt like, but I think she was, she's a very good diplomat. Yeah. So she made lots of friends and I think she helped um, create a lot of bonds and affection between uh, her home city of Tokyo or her home country of Japan and, um, and Swan Hill. And a lot of people still remember her for that, actually. Wow. Because mm. she would have been their only experience with, with Asia at yeah, the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and someone who was, you know, really non-threatening and non-violent and, you know, had a lot, a lot of positives to share with people. And heaps of kids. And four of us. <laughs> and we were, we were the only Asians in town for a long time. The only others were Chinese kids who um, were the children of the local um, Chinese restaurant owners. So it was like, it's us or them, and we're very visible. We couldn't get away with anything. Yeah, right. Mm. And the other thing I remember about you, aside from being from Swan Hill, is that you'd spend a bunch of time in the Torres Strait. Mm-hmm. Now, for people who don't know, the Torres Strait is a tiny little, I guess, a, 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 like a throwing of breadcrumbs of islands that happen between the top, tippy top, pointy bit of a map of Australia mm. and the bottom of Papua New Guinea. That's right. How did you go to get up there and what were you doing up there? <laughs> I know you know the answer to the story. I don't remember it because okay. there's a lot of things that I don't remember about that time in my life <laughs> and I need to get people back in to say, no, I know I was there. Yeah. I know there's photos, but I just don't remember it. Fair enough, fair enough. I'll, I'll refresh your memory. Um, I finished uni and um, a lot of people when they finish uni realise that they don't know what they actually are going to do with their lives. For other people figure it out earlier, but I've, I was at a bit of a loss. And my friends and I had bought tickets for the Blues and Roots Festival in Byron Bay. So we drove from Melbourne to Byron Bay. Which is like a three-day-long festival. It smells like weed. Yeah. There's like lots and lots of bands. Dr. John goes and plays. Yes. Funkadelic will play. You're, you're implying acid might have been taken. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I just like, I know when I went there, the last time I was there was on my birthday, I think my uh-huh. 31st birthday, and I was being past joints from every angle while yeah. I was watching Funkadelic play, going, this is a pretty good birthday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there was a bit going on. Um, but when we got there, I was expecting this beautiful sort of Easter, languorous time of sunshine and, you know, getting wasted with my mates. And it turned out to be just torrential downpours of rain for, for three and a half days. And I was really disappointed. And it was uh, a bit of a low point. And I thought, I can't go home because I haven't had a good time yet. So my friends got in the minivan that we'd hired and drove back to Melbourne and I just stayed and hitchhiked until it got warmer and the rain stopped. You hitchhiked north yeah. until it got warmer and the rain stopped. Yeah. I can't go home because I haven't had a good time yet. Yeah. That sets up two fantastic <laughs> turning points in the story you're about to tell. And you went north until yeah. it got warmer and the rain stopped. And the rain did stop and it did get warmer. About where? Oh, not that far further, actually. I spent a few days in Brisbane. I got further north of that. I got to Townsville. And then I got to a point, really, Osha, where you, you're standing by the side of the road. You, you know the road quite well. And it becomes like a game. And I thought, I don't want any of these nanas picking me up anymore. I don't want the nice Byron mum with the, the dreadlocks and the couple of kids in the back picking me up because she's worried about me being safe. I'm going to go for trucks because trucks cover Ks and I want to cover some serious Ks. So I'd just wait and I'd, I'd stand on a shoulder of the road where you knew a truck could pull over safely and they weren't going super fast and just wait for some big bastard massive road train to come along. And these guys were so... Um, kind and um 
they just wanted someone to have a yarn to. And it was really, really a, a great experience to go, you know what, people are actually really deep down inherently good. No one tried to strangle me or do anything that I didn't want to happen or even say anything that was um, confronting or rude or impolite. People just wanted to have someone in their car or their truck to have a yarn to and maybe I could pay them back by having a yarn, telling them a story, opening their eyes or illuminating some kind of thing to them. So I travelled all the way. Like Walter White in the cabin begging the guy to stay, to stay for an hour, (laughs) play cards with me. (laughs) Wow. So that's really interesting because the the narrative is that if you go hitchhiking, you'll end up lost in a ditch. Yeah, and and with your throat slit. Yeah, but you're... What are you, 5'1"? Yeah, I'm not a tall person. You're a tall, beautiful, <laughs> semi-Asian babe standing on the side of the road with a bag, yeah. very obviously on the lamb from yeah. something or someone. <laughs> from Lush. And, um, you know, but people were all really lovely to yeah, you. Yeah, people were really great. And a few times along the way I thought, this place is so great, I'm going to stop here for a while and get a job. Um, so I stopped out of Cairns in the Atherton Tablelands and got, a few, you know, some cooking jobs and... Um, and then I ended up needing a job outside of Laura, which is just this butthole town. And back then, it it, um, it, it was where the sealed road stopped. So, you know, you could drive as far north as you can to up Queensland, and before you get to that tip, it used to stop being sealed road. So no more tarmac, just dirt just or dirt. mud, depending on what time of year. Yeah, and the dirt would corrugate into these uh, ridges. Yeah, that it's would make so the whole intense thing, with yeah. a whole car. Can you lose control of a car yeah, quite easily? Yeah, and it's bad for the car. And what I found was that every car coming past, because I never had to wait very long for a ride, every car coming past was um, Blue Nomad. Which is the, is that what they call grey nomad? Oh, the grey nomad. nomad. Okay, so there's a tradition in Australia where people, they basically, instead of, once the kids have all left the house and have retired from work, they buy the, the big SUV, the big Nissan Patrol, or the yeah. Ford F-150, they buy a caravan on the back, yeah. they don't, they sell the family home and they just retire on the road and they just go and live out on the road. Yep. And, and they drive around and around. Forever <laughs> and ever. Some of them do retain their homes and return to them, but a lot of a lot of the travellers are, are oldies. And what you find is their cars are completely chock-a-block with stuff, pillows and blankets and dunas and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So they actually couldn't pick me up because there was no room in their cars. So for the first time ever, I couldn't get a lift. And I was standing by the side of the road for three days waiting for a lift and thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to have to... Um, were you hungry? Bail. I had, I had food and there was a pub nearby and I had a camp spot and there was a little Aboriginal community who were quite welcoming. Um, but on the second day, this um, handwritten note was delivered to me by a little Aboriginal kid on a, on a push bike saying, we have job for you in Carnival. Wait, we pick you up. All with crazy spelling and crazy writing because these Carnival people can't write or read. But uh, there was a travelling Carnival coming past. They needed some staff. And um, they saw that I was probably reliable. I guess they could read me that I'd, you know, held down jobs in the past. So they well, came. You're committed. You were standing on the side of the road for three <laughs> days. You've clearly shown commitment to a result. Yeah. So they picked me up, and I had to work. Um, that it was about uh, four or five vehicles with trailers or, or vans that were chock full of things uh, that became a little carnival. So they kind of folded out and became. 
Yeah. Also, like a like a throw the cans down and win a prize. Exactly. The, um, the magical maze of mirrors. The magical maze of mirrors was one that I did have to work on. Whoa. Yeah, the magical maze of mirrors, and um, another one was this bucket game where you had to throw a bucket to try and win a you know a toy. So you went on the road. You became a carny. <laughs> That's the greatest. It's not really. It's not. No, but it is amazing that you even had that experience. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I've never um, spent so much time with people so wild. They were really wild. What like kind they, of wild? Because you've lived in rock and roll your whole like who's who's more wild carnies or the most rock and roll you've seen rock and roll uh carnies it's a different kind of wild like every every rock and roller like from the rolling stones the beatles to i don't know tame impala they've all been educated and they've all got nice families you can kind of surmise that uh from their music even but um carnies are wild they can't read and write a lot of them and this is people your yours and my age and young teenagers who actually have never been to school they've somehow ducked the system there's a lot of rampant alcoholism and incest and the most blinding racism that's so overt that you, you just actually wouldn't actually believe it possible and the, the insults i heard for for indigenous australians would make your hair curl uh from these people so obviously i was an outsider and i was the dirty nip because I've got Japanese. I don't know what I was doing there. But at the same time, I knew at the same time the whole time that it was an adventure and I was, you know, this wasn't going to be my life forever. Um, so that, so they gave me a, a wage, I think, of about $200 a week. What was your job? Uh, manning the maze of mirrors. And it was all Indigenous communities that we stopped in. So these little Aboriginal kids would, would pay $2.50 to come in the maze of mirrors. And, um, you know, it was amazing for them. In part, they could see this is t- totally pathetic and just, you know, some erected bits of plyboard with mirrors screwed to them. And you basically had to get lost inside <laughs> yeah. it and try and find your way out. Yeah, totally. So they'd do that. But before they went in, just to, you know, keep myself amused, I used to tell them ghost stories about little Aboriginal kids that have been lost in, and every now and then we can hear them cry. And their little eyes would get really wide, and they'd come back night after night and hear the stories about these little kids that got lost and never came out of the maze. In your magical maze of mirrors. <laughs> yeah. The kid trap. Yeah. Whoa. How far north did you get? So I got all the way to Bamaga, which is the last town. It's the, the last town on the mainland. And then um, the, the carnival was still travelling across the water on a ferry to um, uh, the main town in the Torres Strait called Thursday Island. So I got to TI and... Um, and we put on the fair for, I think it was like two whole weeks or something. And while I was there, I started thinking I could live there. It was really hot. It was really beautiful. And it was really just, it was just like the most um, peace and and differentness that I've ever seen that's in Australia. It just was, it's like another country, but it's Australian. How old were you? What, 20? I think I was 20, yeah. Wow. Mm. And while I was there, actually, I saw an, a job advertised um, at the local radio station and I thought, there's no way that they're going to give that job to me. I'd done some volunteering at my uni for four years, but I was like, nah, as if they're going to give it to me, but I applied anyway and eventually when they processed the applications, they gave me a job there. What was your gig? <laughs> Announcing, doing request, the request show. What was the station? Uh, oh, God. I can't. Before something. 
It was it was Torres Strait Islander Radio, basically. What was the what was your, uh, your what call, was the call sign? sign? I can't remember. It would have been four four MU. Maybe. But what was your uh, what was your format? Like when I did B one hundred and five, it was better music variety from the seventies, eighties, <laughs> and nineties. Yeah, no, it wasn't that formulaic. It was um, community radio, so it was all funded by the government. We didn't have to sell any advertising. And what kind of requests were you playing? What song you want belong you and me? And I used to have to try and speak to Torres Strait Creole, which I do terribly. Um, but we used to play a lot of R and B. Mace, all I ever wanted was massive back then, massive. And the white people, because it was sort of a mixture of white and um, and locals, so, so all the locals wanted R&B and all the white people wanted Santana. <laughs> hippies. <laughs> Bloody hippies. Um, which is, but what seems really interesting is if you've ever seen, I'd highly recommend seeing the film Marbo, which kind of tells the story of the, the Torres Strait on the people who are dif- different uh fundamentally physically different mm. from mainland Australian mm. indigenous people. Uh, they, they look different. They have a different culture. Um, what did you learn about, I don't know, what did you learn about Australia living up there? Mm. Like that would have, that's a tiny, smaller than Swan Hill, I'm going to guess. Yeah, way smaller. Uh, what did I learn about Australia? I, I think it's, um, it's very easy to be city-centric in Australia, um, but it's important to remember that there's a whole lot of us out there that are very, very different who have different needs and different wants from the government. They have, you know, they don't, not everyone lives in a suburb with a JB high Yeah, exactly. I did take away a good lesson, I think, that maybe I internalised at the time and didn't realise until later. But I met a lot of the, um, the local girls who were Torres Strait Islander girls uh, were getting knocked up young, like 16, 17 and have the baby in the community around them was always really supportive. It was one of those cultures where if you can't look after the baby, your father or your uncle or, you know, your family member will just absorb them as their own and it was beautiful. Um, but what you'd see is these great chicks that have their babies rear them and they'd be great little little people as well. But around 25, 26 years old, these women would get their lives back because the kids would be old enough to kind of look after themselves and they'd still be, the girls would still be sexy and smart. They'd have jobs by then and they'd have independence and... Um, it was like they um, they all started living again. It, it showed me that motherhood wasn't the end. Uh-huh. You know, you don't have to hang up your your mojo You're as right. such just because you've had a baby. Um, and so you went north because you wanted to find you wanted to get warmer and you hadn't started having fun yet. Yeah. So what was the point until I went? Oh, I've had fun now. I'm going to go home. Well, you know what? I just I really always loved culture. I loved you know films and and and, um, and music and stuff. And I really felt like all we can do up here is consume it. You know, I want to put back into culture, culture at large, I guess. There, there was definitely music being made there, but I wanted to get in there and, and participate more. And I thought I can only do that in a, in a capital city. So that's, and I missed my, my mum as well. Now, is that where photography came into it? Um, photography. I tell people, whenever <laughs> people ask me about photography, I'm like, I was... Like, I was just like a regular schmo. I had cameras my whole life, and I took kind of photos often, and I moved to video. I used to video a lot of things. But when I met you, and you talked to me about photography, and the Mm. things you taught me about photography changed how I took photos. And it was between you and Liz Olnut, who, uh, Elizabeth Olnut, who's a great photographer. Between the two of you, I was like, oh, wow, this can be something completely different. And the way that you documented your life and the Mm. way you documented your work... Um, really, really inspired me. And as a result, I've now got way too many <laughs> lenses. I mean, look at that shit. Yeah. Like, there's cameras all over this table, for yeah. example. And we'll get to that. But you were the first person I ever met that had a camera that was so expensive 
you cared for it better than any object I've ever seen <laughs> anyone ever care for something. I remember you told me once, other people buy sports cars, I buy Leicas. Right. And you had that Leica R8, which was... I didn't know what it was at the time, yeah. but now I know it was like that was like the greatest thing you it could was beautiful. ever get. Precision steel, German, German technology. Germans, they're good at stuff. Yeah. yeah. So did you study? You studied photography A little uni? bit, yeah, but, it, but not much. I sort of had this fantasy that I might be a, a music photographer, like a Tony Mott type thing, you know, uh, and that was my, my, would have been my way to participate with. Tony Mott's like the Australian Annie Leibovitz, I guess you'd, you'd yeah, call him. That's, yeah. that's, that's his job. He specialises in, in rock photography, and I thought that could be me. Um, but I also found that a lot of people don't take good photos of their lives. And so for those in my, in my circle or my periphery, if I could be there and take a snap of a moment at their birthday or um, them just having a laugh and then present them with a print of that, it could be uh, a, a really galvanizing moment for that memory for them mm. does that make sense absolutely and and that's what i remember and that was the greatest influence that you had even though you weren't there in the room the the we used to do Ch channel v which is a station that you and i worked together on it was a television channel in sydney we had a, a three-walled studio that was on a shopping mall kind of like the queen street mall in brisbane or the third street promenade in la it's so we were open out to the street and in the back there was a green room in the back of that there was a tiny little makeup room and you had you'd plastered the walls with photographs that you'd taken mm. uh, from your time in First Eye Island, but also from just like you'd go to a gig and come back with the most amazing photographs mm. and you were taking photos on set all the time and you're, I was like, there's something to this. You're capturing these days that are just flying by me in mm. a haze of beer and, and busyness. Mm. And like you'd, you'd get to June and you'd think the big day had just finished, but it had been six months ago and mm. you just hadn't stopped because we were just making so much. We are making five days of three hours live a day. Yeah. And I remember that. That you taught me that, like, because I was looking at those photos every day in that makeup room, just going, I should really take more photographs. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, but with the contributing to the to art and contributing mm. to, to, to culture, um, you started, did you immerse yourself in that scene? Because I know that you were, you were always mates with like super arty people that I had no <laughs> idea. Where do you find these people? Like, did you deliberately go and immerse yourself in that kind of thing? I think I was really attracted to those kinds of people. My first serious boyfriend was a fine artist, and I and I really learned a lot just from watching his um, his craft. He I, I, he's still quite successful um, a, an artist now who's made a living from that. And um, I, I just saw that the allocation of hours in his day to actually practicing the craft of your art was extraordinary and a lot of us think you know to be an artist maybe you uh you go to work and then you come home and then you p pick up a paintbrush and you paint a picture and and then you, you go and watch tv for the rest of the night and it's not it doesn't work like that you have to um you have to treat it very seriously like an obsessive compulsive um job yeah. that you attend to maybe five or six days a week from you know nine to five or like grown up an amount of hours. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was always attracted to creative people. I was attracted to um, the choices that they made in their lives, which I think is the choice that my dad didn't make. So my dad was a very creative person, but he wanted us to have private school education and um, and a good life. So he stepped away from his creativity to make money. And I, I've really watching him die when I was eighteen. I really felt. Uh, that that was the lesson I should take from this experience was that he um, had given his life for for uh, giving us material things, but his soul hadn't flourished, and um, 
and that was a really terrible sacrifice. Did you realise that at the time? I did, did, yeah. Really? Yeah. At 18, you realised that? Yeah. Holy shit. Mm, I could, I'm 39. I could barely make that connection. <laughs> well, it helps if you stay poor for a while, I think. Then you don't get um, addicted to, to money or consumerism. But I saw, um, you know, the day he, that he died and the day before he died was, was very uh, indelible, you can imagine, in an 18-year-old's mind. But he was hallucinating that he was having an exhibition of his artworks. And I found that really sad that, you know, he'd had, wow. yeah, a life where he'd, he'd, um, he'd worked as a chemist when he, he could have made a, a go of being an artist. And we would have been poorer, but maybe we, we would have been happier. Well, firstly, let me say thank you for saying that. Thank you for sharing that. You never told me that before. And that's, you know, just, just hearing you say that about, listen, thinking about my own dad, um, both my parents were really creative. But at the time, if you were that creative, you went into medicine mm. because that's where the creative people and the smart people went. But I remember as a kid, staying up late and like sneaking out, if I had to pee, I'd sneak out, I'd see my dad, would be smoking a pipe and I'd just be sketching on sketchbooks and he had just pages and pages and pages and pages mm. of sketches. It was, my dad was also a really great musician, but he just kind of let it go. Mm. And it makes me think, cause I haven't picked up a bass in years. <laughs> it makes me think, yeah. Maybe you should start again. Yeah, a bass player without a band's a lonely man. <laughs> you know, it's, our parents were from the same generation and it was, it's considered, um, you know, folly that you could make a career in the arts yeah. for, for that generation. And they still are, are dubious about about us doing it, I think. Yeah, right. Not quite like, are you... Yes, but when this television thing dries up, what are you going to do yeah, for a living? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so you and I had some amazing times at Channel V, mm. and about midway through uh, our time together at Channel V, you stood on stage at the ARIA Awards, you were so beautiful. You are the only woman I've ever met that gets more beautiful every day I see her. And mm-hmm. I've told you that every time I see her, and I'll tell you until the day there, I There die. will be a point where it'll stop. I disagree entirely. <laughs> and you stood on stage, and you were standing next to Mike Carey. Poor Mike had no idea what was coming. And so this is the ARIA Awards. It's like the Australian Grammys, all right? Yeah. It's a big deal. It's a live telecast. There's thousands of people in the room. You're in a beautiful kimono. Your hair is amazing. And you're presenting an award to someone for something. I don't know what it is. And Mike goes, and he goes, something like, I don't know, the best original song is a really important category and these nominees are no less than any of the other ones. Right, Yumi? And you went, yeah, Mike. Firstly, though, I just have to say, um, Mum, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. On live TV. And that was... Exactly. Again, it comes back to you just never being afraid to, to say it. Was that actually the first time she found out? No, it wasn't. But it was the first time I told everyone at work. I, I, they tell you not to tell anyone that you're pregnant because the baby could, could die for the first three months. So that's that danger zone. So not to tell anyone. So I kept it a secret from, from uh, you know, people who weren't in my very closest circle. And then I didn't know how to unsecret it. It was like I'd, I'd zipped up my mouth so tightly that I, I'd... I couldn't blurt it out. You're on TV every day. We were working together, I think, if not every day of the week, three or four days a week. Yeah. And I vaguely recall, we were sharing a green room, so it was a very small green room. I vaguely recall that you were putting on weight. <laughs> but I, at the same time, I was like, that's when I first noticed, wow, she's getting, she's hotter than she was yesterday. Oh, yeah, right. How did she do that? Fatter and hotter. Fatter. And I just remember that the one day you made a big deal about not being able to do jeans up, and I was like, Oh, whatever. It didn't even... I was such a dumb idiot. I'm dumb as a box of hammers. Well, nobody... I was totally... It was totally inappropriate for me to get pregnant. It's not like... You Why? Know, because... 
You're a woman. You, you've got a womb. You yeah. go right ahead and do it. Yeah. Because I, I guess I hadn't mapped out my master plan, which I think women do now, don't they? They have it all planned now. Uh, plus, I was with a musician who's always an inappropriate father to a child. <laughs> As you know, Asha, <laughs> don't act like you don't know. Um, yeah, but... Uh, it, what about my dad being a musician? Or? No, about the musician I ended up with. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy, but he was uh, a musician. <laughs> so you, you had no way to unsecret it. So you're trying to think of a way to unsecret it. And you chose a pretty excellent way because it, it, it got it out in the open and it got it. It was no debate. No. And it was all, everybody knew all at once in one fell swoop. It was like, actually by the time I was four and a half months pregnant, I'd kept the secret for four and a half months instead of just the requisite three. And, uh, and then I blurted it out on stage as I was giving out an aria, which was, you know, I thought that was, was kind of funny. But in later years, I thought that maybe that was mean to that band. I stole, I stole their thunder a little bit. It was Powderfinger. They'll get it. Right. They got more Powderfinger. I think they got six awards that night or something. Yeah. Don't worry. They got more arias. Mm-hmm. They've, they've still got the aria, and you've still got the kid. So yeah. everybody wins. Everybody's happy. Everybody's yeah. happy. And that was your first daughter, Anouk. And um, a few years later, Didi came along, mm-hmm. your other daughter. And it was around that time that I had just broken up. It was actually, they're quite close, your kids, aren't they? Mm, but, uh, yeah, about a year apart. Yeah, yeah. Year and wow, a half it's, apart. it's quite, quite mm. close. My brother and I are 23 months apart, mm. so they're much closer to your kids. And um, I, speaking of keeping secrets, I'd broken up with my girlfriend of seven years and I didn't want to tell anyone. And I was, I thought I was keeping it under wraps. I thought no one knew that I was, in the meantime, I'm turning up to work. I'm just not saying anything that oh. isn't on camera. And one day you, you say, well, come around to my house for, for dinner. And I came around to your house in Bondi, which is just down the street from where we're actually sitting right now. And you served me a cup of this tea, which I've found today and I've brewed because <laughs> I was like, you're going to come around and make you this tea <laughs> because it reminds you of that night. And it was dinner time at yours. You are an amazing chef, which we're going to get to. Um, but you cooked me this incredible meal. You served me the first time I'd ever eaten uh, notte, the no, uh, natto, natto. Natto, yeah. the Japanese um, fermented soybean, which yeah. I absolutely loved. Uh, you fed me this tea. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then it was bath time and it's really hard to be super depressed when <laughs> Little Naked and Nook and Dee Dee are running around um, <laughs> running around at bath time, <laughs> yeah. just nude, nudie runs everywhere talking about 
was it Frankie, the eight-legged spider? Maybe. Or Freddie, there was a spider in the bathroom that oh, they named. Oh, Sammy Spider. Sammy Spider, yeah. that'll be it. And, and I just remember that you just seen, you didn't even mention it. You didn't even mention anything about my, the fact that I, this was the first meal that I'd probably eaten in about a month. Mm. <laughs> it was, it was just super kind of you to, to do that and to, and to, you know, extend that, that, that kindness to me. And, and ever since then, of being exposed to the way you parented your kids, it really blew me away. Because I'm, you know, as a boy, I only know what it's like to be a parent of boys. And I saw my younger brothers get raised by my mum. But watching the way you dealt with these two kids, who, you know, they're their mother's daughters, so they they have the same ability to say what's on their mind as you do. <laughs> but I, remember, I think it was a nook was trying to throw a hissy fit about something, and you just said to her. Straight away, he said, we've talked about this. Please get that look off your face, and then we'll do this nicely. And in about four seconds, there was no return tantrum. She was like, okay, I'm not going to win. <laughs> and it'll turn out. I was like, you can parent like that? It doesn't have to be yelling and screaming and anger. It can just be really easy. How did that come into your... Is that, is that stuff you learn from your mum? Is that stuff you learn from other people? I don't did know. it just come naturally? I don't know. They're pretty good kids, Osha, luckily. They're, they're, you raised them. Yeah, but they just come out like they, what they are. And you just have to be there for the ride, hoping that you're doing the right thing. But with, with Anouk, um, she's, she, she was, she's always been good to rationalise with, whereas Didi, I have to shout at her. You, you've missed that one a bit because you haven't been around Didi as was much. very little that night. She is, she's very annoying, very willful, and very pretty much my twin. Uh-oh. <laughs> she was born about four days after my own birthday, and there's a lot of... Uh, the, the, we've got the exact same face, except she's blonde and white and blue-eyed. Um, but apart from that, she's exactly like me, and people look at her and shake their heads and just go, you are getting paid back with that child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I look at... The, they had a band? Yeah, right? they used to have a band. Mm. And they wrote their own songs. Mm-hmm. You used, used to post videos of the songs these kids would make, and I'd be like, these kids are going to take over the world. Yeah. Do you get a sense of that? Um, not really. I think, um, yeah, you hear a lot of people who work in media saying, you know, I don't mind what my kids do. They'll be happy if they do whatever they want to do. But I do feel like I think it's imperative I teach them that um, they can be creative and they can fail. You know, you don't have to be the best. And also that um, things like singing isn't a competition. Um, Despite they, what every Sunday night television show <laughs> tells you. Yeah, I blame you. You can. <laughs> I made it a, help make it a competition. Yeah. I think their strengths are in, um, in being creative, in being musical or artistic. So I, I want to encourage that. But I, God, it's just, it is, as you know, to do anything creative, to put yourself out there, it's really asking for being knifed in the guts repeatedly. You know, doing something like a photo exhibition it was really, really brave, I thought, that you did when you put up your um, 365 oh, days of self-portraits. Self-portraits. Here's a lot of photos of me, everyone. <laughs> yeah. But it was – but see, this is the thing that I want to – I really want to be the, the teacher of this to those kids. If you did 365 days of self-portraits and they're all shit, which they weren't, but if you did um, – 
you've still accomplished something. You did 365 days of portraits. That's really actually really a massive accomplishment. It's like somebody who writes an awful book or an awful song or you know anything that requires uh, the assessment of others or the appreciation of the audience of another person. I really think that, that the main thing is just having the guts to do it and everyone else's opinion can go to hell. I, I concur. <laughs> I'm shit scared of this podcast. Every time, every time I put one up, I sit there and I refresh the... No, don't look. Yeah, you know? Yeah. But just the fact that I'm able to do it, I'm just really grateful mm. that, I'm, that I'm able to do it. Because it just... I don't know, there's something about being in the process of, uh, of, of, of having the conversation with my guest and then editing it and then, and then putting it up and just like, well, that's it. There it is. There it is out there. And in fact, in many ways, it's the purest form of interview I've ever done mm. doing these podcasts because mm-hmm. I'm able to honestly share from a personal perspective and that that's exactly what it is it's not a television show where we're trying to structure an interview around making sure we get the ad breaks in and it's not a radio show um, it's, it is what it is it's like it says it on the box here's an hour of two people talking to each other <laughs> this is how long it is if you think it's too long there are pop songs <laughs> <laughs> this is this is how long this chat is and that's just fine yeah and um but i i you know i'm just i'm just really really grateful for it you um were smarter than me you stayed at uh, xyz which is the company that runs channel v and music max and v hits mm. and um country music channel um i uh, started to live my life in a lot of fear around then and i started getting really afraid of everything that wasn't outside my front door and i, I left because I was just afraid of all these new people and I was afraid of moving to North Ride and I was just afraid of a lot of stuff. Um, But you stayed and then really graciously transitioned to Music Max, Mm. which was basically transitioning out of MTV into VH1, like sort of graduating into the (laughs) upper class of now we get to talk about growing up music. And you made a TV show with... um, an Australian music legend, Jimmy Barnes, mm. who is basically Australia's Bruce Springsteen. He's the he's the working class man. Mm. He he's working hard to make a living, bringing yep. shelter from the rain. Mm-hmm. And he's also a really interesting guy. Mm. Did you? Is there a moment that you had working with Barnesy that kind of, you know, is your I worked with Barnesy story? Well, I had a lot of moments. <laughs> he's he is a legend, but um, there are a couple of moments. One was um, he was describing a barbecue at his house, and I said, oh, Barnsley, wish I was in your family. And I kind of looked like his kids because they're half Asian as well. And he said, oh, there's room for one more. You and me, come on, because <laughs> he's got that kind of Scottish accent. Um, and another moment was, because he, at the time, I think at the time, Barnsley was um, completely sober. Uh, after abusing his body for many years, he went completely, no alcohol, no drugs, and... Um, I had to turn up to a shoot the, the very morning after the Arias and uh-huh. I'd had a, a bit of a night. <laughs> Which is that, and this is like, all your kids are growing up, they're off the boob, you're, 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 you're back on it, you're living the rock and roll dream. And so the night, you can imagine, the night after a Grammys or the night after yeah. an awards show, you tend to go to whatever it is you've got to do the next day straight from the party. <laughs> you don't sleep. Absolutely. And um, I know I had had such a good night too. Friends had, f- friends had won, uh, done very well, and um, we'd ended up back at their hotel. And I just felt like I was on top of the world, you know. I was, it was like I'd won. Uh, but then I had to turn up to work. <laughs> and Barnsley took one look at me, and he went himself off to the chemist, and he got me some Panadols and some Barocas <laughs> and chucked them in my lap. And he was... In a way, in a dadsy kind of way, he was proud of me for the night that I'd had. Mm. <laughs> He's, that is an amazing story. Yeah. That he was just like, I know what you're going through, kiddo. <laughs> Let me help you out. 
because this photo needs to have all of us looking good. <laughs> oh, he's such a good, he's such a good guy. Yeah. Um, you went on to do some other TV, which was basically it was an Australian version of of The View. Mm-hmm. It was uh, same similar format. It was getting up in the morning and um, and a bunch of fabulous smart women. Mm-hmm. Was there a bloke at that point? No, 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 bloke talking. Yeah. About stuff. It was called The Circle. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? It was pretty amazing. It, mu- it must have been comparable to when you went from cable to um, doing Australian Idol. Going from network, going from cable to network TV mm. is like, I don't know, there's a seat at the front of the plane. Yeah. What do you mean we get a fresh towel? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean I'm going to have a drink before we take off? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what you did was different because yours was prime time. It was absolutely massive, whereas our show was just a, it was just a little morning show. But it, it was suddenly a much bigger audience and much more serious stakes. And I found, um, I found that I had to be mindful of my audience yet again. You know, on Channel V, we're talking to little kids a bit, and we had to be mindful of that. And on Max, uh, which was like VH1, um, it was music fans. So you could use shorthand to talk about musical things. But going on to morning TV... And you could also do use obscure references yeah. on Max because people felt super rewarded when they went, oh, they just referred to a Crosby, Stills, Nash <laughs> and Young song because I know that Neil Young was still in the band back then. Uh-huh, yeah. Right. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, morning TV is a whole different bag. You're, you're talking to a lot of breastfeeding mums uh, and I have a lot of affinity for that, for those kinds of people because I was uh, when I started The Circle, I was a single mum with two little daughters. The, the musician had evaporated <laughs> Um, but also really conservative people who are just at home seeming to wanting to be there to write letters of complaint to the network as well. <laughs> and people who'd never seen an Asian person before on TV and didn't know why I was there. Um, but mostly, it, it actually, I'm talking it down, it was actually mostly the audience was... Um, immediately became very trusting of us of mm. our show and um and part of a, a big family and mm. it was it was a pretty special time to be part of that and there was you know do you want to talk about the end of it or we don't have to talk yeah about i'm it. happy to talk whatever you want to ask me there was a there was a special there was a, a big incident that happened at the at, when that show i guess now was towards the end of it yeah when there was a photo it was just brought up on screen. As it happens often when you're doing these shows, you're live, 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 mm. and photographs come up on a monitor and you react to them. And so there's a photo of a handsome guy with a lot of muscles came up on the screen. Yeah. He was in a pool. And there was you and George Negus, who's a, a legendary Australian newsman, mm. uh, the Tom Brokaw of, of Australian news, and has you know, interviewed Edie Amin and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, really heavy-duty guy. And you both said some stuff about this guy mm. not understanding or not knowing that it was actually a guy that had won a big he'd, he'd, he'd served, Victoria Cross winner he'd, he'd won yeah. a Victoria Cross which is a very distinguished you know medal he's a war hero mm. and it was like the outrage machine just went click mm. on yeah and the thing that bothered me the most about it was that it was you a half Asian woman on the television and it was him, a white Australian man on the television, both said some stuff and in my opinion he might have said something a little more intense than you did but you're the one that copped it and that really bothered me Mm. I can't imagine what it was like for you Mm. It's funny when um, 
you know, when I look back on that time, I think I think generally we've gone through a massive collective amnesia about about that incident because it was big for about three months and then it just completely went away. And um, not to say it went away completely or that I'm not sorry for what happened, but it's just I think that people who um, spit hatred and vitriol just like to t- pretend like they never did that. Um, so the situation was um, was really. Uh, quite frightening for a while. You know, the police had to come and secure my home um, because of the threats made on my life, and I had to tell the school teacher, the school principal at my daughter's school, that um, threats had been made up upon the kids as well. And that was that was sort of the moment when I when I really felt um, like, what what am I doing? There's, obviously, this isn't right. If I've got a if the safety of my kids is being compromised because of my work, like my work's not that important. I must be doing this wrong. <laughs> that is horrifying. No, it, was, it was really I horrifying. I had no idea that it, because I was overseas when mm. it happened. I had to watch it all unfold via news websites. Internet, yeah. That is, I had no idea it was so, so horrendous. It's a bit terrifying. You must have slept for weeks. Yeah, it was, you know what? I just, I mean, I, even now in the safety of a room with you, one of my oldest friends, I still feel this rising ang- anxiety to talk about it because I don't want to dredge it up and, and give it more fuel, you know, yeah. that somebody might um, start up another hate campaign, even though I don't don't think that that would happen again. But the the situation was, ju- it was just a perfect storm, I think, and it was it was terribly sad um, and, and scary. And I felt that I couldn't say sorry enough times. You know, I, I was sorry and I, I said sorry, um, but it wasn't enough. I, I didn't know what people wanted, I you, think. You even called the bloke himself. And yeah, and he was a really, him. just a really down-to-earth, normal, lovely, um, genuine, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just, just a really, a really rational, classy guy. No one has this number, but it breathes every now and again. <laughs> that was like our holiday hunt. I'm afraid to pick it up in case it's in the ring or something. <laughs> so you, you had a conversation with him, and yeah, and he was he was a really lovely guy. He was very down to earth, gracious is the word I was looking for. He's a very gracious man about it, but the public at large didn't want to hear about that or didn't care. Um, but you know what? Among all this. Um, you know, this was happening. It was incredibly stressful. I felt terrible for all my workmates who were receiving, you know, awful things. But at the same time, you know, my private life was, was going on and I'd, I'd realised that I'd met the man that I loved and um, I had proposed to him and he had accepted. And, um, you know, in amongst all this ugliness, there was beauty as well and I was allowed to have that. I had it a bit more privately than I might have otherwise, um, but it, I didn't let it monster my life. I'm just even you just describing that. I'm just so afraid for you because even the barest of exposure that I've had to that kind of anger mm. and 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 just spitting bile that mm. comes at you sometimes on you know in doing a job that you're in in the public eye, it's going to happen. It, and even in my smallest exposure, that kind of thing, it never came close to that. Yeah, it never came close to that, and it just reminded me of like, Jesus, you fucking had it hard. <laughs> it <was> just, <laughs> I remember another time, and people ask me about this a lot. They ask me about you and what's she like. I'm like, she has the hardest. I don't know what it is with Australians and women on the screen, mm. and particularly Asian women on screen. We were at. 
uh, Channel V bus show in Caloundra, um, which is a, it's kind of not the main beach of, it's not Noosa, which is the very fancy, fancy right. upmarket one. And it's a few suburbs down. It's about <laughs> half an hour, 45 minutes down, maybe a bit more. And it's, you know, it's kind of a, a slightly less fancy you know, holiday. <laughs> you want to say down market. I don't know. I don't know. A lot of people, <laughs> lovely people have made their homes there, Yumi. But we were doing this bus show, which is basically us and a satellite truck and, and, a, and a band. And, and we put these shows on for kids and thousands of kids would turn up and it was amazing. And some kid threw a, you were pregnant with Dee, heavily pregnant with Dee. Mm. And some kid threw a lit firecracker on the stage at, at us and it landed right next to you. I remember our cameraman, Pete Mazzaferro, saw it and he put his boot on it and it blew up under his foot. And I thought to myself, what the, what is this? What, what are we doing? Mm. And it really freaked me out. Mm. I remember you got a bottle thrown at you a few times. Oh, yeah. Federation Square, I remember one. Yeah, yeah, you get, it's different, you know. I don't know if, no, I don't want to say it because it's happened on radio before. Um, but there's something different about it's equally cowardly to throw something from a crowd mm. than it is to post online. But there's something about posting online that's just so, it's just so cowardly mm. and anonymously too. Mm. I don't really read any of that stuff. But I do remember I went. Um, I, I do I do sort of relish the face-to-face interactions. I saw it with you and, and James when you were doing Australian Idol a bit. People would walk, you'd be in a bar or you'd be in a crowded area and people would deliberately bump into you just so that they could go home and tell their friends that they knocked a drink out of your hand or something. It was, it was not, it wasn't even unkind. It was just goofy, but very inconsiderate. And I saw this repeatedly with you guys because you were at this hyper level of fame people just wanting to muck with you for, for, a, for an anecdote. But one of my favourites that I, that I ever had was, it was fairly recently, and I was hosting a, um, an Australia Day broadcast from Canberra's Parliament House, and there were all the, you know, the cream of Australian bands. I think this Barnes is like our was, 4th of July. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a really big shot. And it was outside Parliament House, which was like the White House, except pissy and little and Australian. Oh, come on. Australia, our, our government house is actually pretty hot. It's pretty fancy looking. Come on. It's got a very 80s architecture, like it's oh, some yeah. sort of Stargate portal. It's like shooting up into the sky. I actually like it. I think it's pretty cool. Um, and all the Canberrans come out for it because it's free entertainment. It's hundreds, like quarter yeah. million people's going yeah. to sit on that Amazing. Grass. So I went out in the crowd and I had a, a lighting guy and a camera guy, Soundy, a producer and a, and a security person. So there was a fair few of us, but there was just a massive crush of, of people behind us. So we tried to make an effort to get all the kids behind us to get that lovely shot. I hear all these happy Aussie kids celebrating Australia Day. And we were counting down to go on air. I still had about 30 seconds, so I wasn't stressed. And a little kid, a little ginge tapped me on the shoulder and went, hey, excuse me. And I turned around and said, yeah. And he, and he said, go back to your own country. <laughs> And I just had to laugh because, you know, I was actually born here. So I would, I would go back to my own country right now. I'm here. Here I am in Australia because I'm Australian. My goodness. Happy Australia Day. Happy Australia <laughs> yeah. Day. Yeah. Oh, darling. Oh, no. So I guess one question that, that I would like to bring a little light into the darkness of talking about that time in your life yeah. was who was the – or who were the people that – rallied to you and who are the people that you went to for 
you know, that helped you come out of that. Yeah. And who were the people that came to your defence and say and helped save the day yeah. for you? Oh, there were lots actually. Um, you were one of them. I think you were far away, but you still found the time to email me and say. I think my word was um, that's heaps fucking fucked. <laughs> It was my send. <laughs> I think that's what I wrote to you. Yeah. And actually, I got a lot of that from uh, international friends. But my husband was great. My kids were really great. And um, my mum, you know, my mum is, she's fucking great. She is old. She's 70. So she's seen shit happen. She's, uh, you know, she survived post-war Japan and uh, being a migrant and losing her husband to cancer. And she just sort of said, oh, they're still talking about you. That must mean they like you very much. <laughs> Yoshko! Yoshko! Uh, she just had a way of kind of just shrugging her shoulders at it, you know, and not taking it all too seriously. Um, I also got contacted by some fantastic academics and authors and writers who um, wow. reached out and, and wow. yeah, and sort of said, this is, um, this is racism. Uh, this is Australia. Uh, well, you know, the, the, the reason, the, the reason I said that comment about that, that lovely soldier was because my workmate had said, had held up his picture and said, on camera and off camera before, before we went on air, she said, this is the perfect man. I think this is the ultimate man. So I had to say, I don't think he, he doesn't look so much like the ultimate man. It's not really my type. My type is a Jewish guy with a cardigan and glasses, you know. That's just not my type. So I, I alluded to the fact that he might not have been that bright, you know, and that was, that was sort of all. The, because you make a television and everyone has the same opinion on a show, it's boring. Yeah. And you have to... Feel free to disagree. Yeah, occasionally yeah. you have to say the other thing to what the other person says just to make it an interesting segment. Exactly. Uh, I didn't realise that it would erupt into such a, a nightmarish... Um, Controversy, and that I would be at the centre of it. Have your children's lives threatened to mm. the point where you've got the police involved? Mm. Dear God, mm. that's just. And and that's the thing. Like when I saw it go down, I was like, I was so. Oh God, I was ashamed. I was ashamed mm. that it was happening in this country that I love. And it made me really sad that that behaviour was like, yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah. No, 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 not fair enough. Not fair enough because if it was fair enough, then that bloke would be getting the same amount of attention. Yeah, but I wouldn't wish that on him either. But the thing is, Osha, the thing is, um, it's just the media. It's just what people do. They whip up a storm. People react, and I felt I felt really sorry for everybody involved. I felt sorry for the people who sent me hate mail, um, and the people who took time out to call Channel Ten to complain, and the people who sent me hateful words on Twitter and Facebook. It's just mostly there was a big eruption of nastiness that didn't actually. I didn't allow it to touch me, and and I'm, I have no ill will about it about any of the stuff that was said or done because it's just part of the game that we are in. We're doing the dance in this media environment every now and then that happens and then and then it goes away it blows over and then the next eruption happens and we're here still dancing away man this is our job you're right oh, i need to take some of that on board you're amazing <laughs> <laughs> and and so you came out of that yeah and you are now which is equally amazing you are now one half of the first ever all-female breakfast radio team in australia mm -hmm. um and our ratings just went up today thank you congratulations yeah 
Uh, I know what that's like. It's always lovely. I haven't known what that's like for a long time. This is why I don't work in radio anymore. <laughs> um, did you know it was the, uh, the first all-female team at the time or it just kind of happened to be that? Did they, was it planned that way? I think it was planned that way, actually. I saw it uh, get cast in Melbourne um, with one of my close friends, Chrissy Swan, mm-hmm. um, as one of the, the duo. And then I knew that they were looking in Sydney and I was bloody hoping desperately to get sent back to Sydney because I really – it's my favourite city. It's where I want to live. It's my home. So three years in Melbourne was unreal, but I was keen to come back to Sydney. And um, when they put my name forward, I was – I was dead set ready to come back. I have, I have like a, a sexual passion for Sydney. I have a romance with Sydney. It's the best city. People ask me all the time, what, do, is Sydney better than LA? And I try, I just say, it's like trying to compare the best meal you've ever eaten with the best sex you've ever had. Ah. It doesn't compare at all. Right. They're, they're two equally amazing things. Yeah. But Sydney's definitely the sex part. Right. It's a, a sexy doubt. city. Oh my God. Yeah. Even the bits out past the Glebe Island Bridge, <laughs> which I never go to. <laughs> Even those bits out there uh-huh. are amazing. There's yeah. just something about this city that is just mind-blowing. Mm. And then Los Angeles, it's an industry town. Mm. It's an industry town. It's TV, film, music, internet, and that's it. Mm. That's what goes on there. And you, you move there to do those things. If you're not in those things, you should go and live somewhere lovely like Portland. Right. You know? <laughs> go live somewhere beautiful like Houston in Texas. Go go and enjoy the great outdoors and enjoy space. If mm-hmm. you like, you know, like no public areas and like really intense population of Australia crammed into the size of Melbourne, basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> go and live in LA. <laughs> um, so what's the best thing about doing breakfast radio? Oh, well, you can get away with so much more. Yeah, it's an ideas it's an ideas marketplace basically which is un, so so different from TV TV is very structured it's very controlled you have to convey a message and then get the hell out whereas as you know radio is much more about your ideas and it's also about telling telling stories you know with with words and I quite I'm quite fond of words yes and you have a very very equally powerful uh, partner that you're on air with Sally <laughs> yeah, yeah who's an equally remarkable woman yeah um, what's the key with you know, I've my history with strong-willed women is not good. Um, what's it like having two strong-willed women in a small little studio every day for hours at a time? It's pretty good, actually. She's 43 years old, so she's been around, you know, and she's worked in really awfully sexist environments. So I think she's pretty pleased to be where we are right now. And I'm um, operating on a high level of indifference. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> That's sort of my, the way that I try and function most of the time. You know, I've got two beautiful kids. I've got a husband. I've got a, a new puppy. Uh, I've got a home that I purchased uh, last year. And I'm kind of very interested in making all the people that I love get along okay and tick along and be healthy and be happy and that's my main job my second job is going to work and doing radio stuff so so long as the first part's going all right I don't sweat too much on the second the second takes care of itself you know I turn up I'm diligent I'm hard working I'm sober and um you know and I love to laugh and I'm a happy person I'm engaged with ideas, but I'm not sweating numbers. I'm not going to sweat advertisers. I'm not going to suck up to clients. I'm not going to suck up to my bosses. I'm just going to have fun because that's what I think my job is. And with Sammy, I think, you know, she's um, she's fantastic. She's like blonde to my brunette. She's single to my marriage. She's childless to my 
you know, two kids and she gets to do things that I don't get to do. Like, you know, whereas I have to allocate my resources to my home and my, my family, she, she can go for a weekend to Hawaii, you know, do all kinds of things. So I think between the two of us, we make up almost a perfect woman. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it is. Um, so you did touch on that a little bit, talking about Sammy's past, but what is it to be, besides what you've just described, could you encapsulate what it is to be, like, what do you tell your daughters about growing up to be, you're going to be a woman in this world ah. that treats women this way? What do you tell your kids about that? I don't tell them anything about that because I don't want to set them up to have the expe- expectation they'll be treated that way. But I always say to Anouk, don't play dumb. Don't play dumb. Don't ever act up your dumbness to get what you want or to get out of doing something that you don't want to do. She's really pretty. And um, sometimes I think she's already, I can see she's working that angle sometimes, you know. I don't know. What what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, But I think that the world that they live in will will be the world that they make. They've got enough control and say they'll have enough education behind them that they won't. They will never be victims unless they make themselves victims. That's an amazing thing to have for any parent, I'd imagine. If you start with that, then yeah. you're going to be all right. Yeah. Also, they're learning karate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing that, before we wrap up, there's one thing that we really haven't touched on, which is really important. Ah. Oh. You are mm. one of the greatest chefs I've oh. ever, ever met. <laughs> How long is it between now as mm. we're recording this and your cooking show? Oh, and my cooking show, really? I don't know. I, I know that um, I, I, I want to do an eating show. <laughs> eating show would be even better than yeah. a cooking show. Yeah. I want to do a show where I get to go around with a good close friend and, uh, and eat lots of food at different By around, times. you mean the world? Around the world. Start with Australia. Uh, there are kids involved. But, yeah, start with Australia. We've got some great food here anyway. Uh, and then eating. But, yeah, people have often said I should do a cookbook or a cooking show. I think I could make that make that work. There's got to be a, a grey zone between this ridiculous, you know, gastronomy kind of molecular bullshit and food that people actually want to eat and cook. There's a lot of that in Los Angeles. A lot of the molecular gastronomy, mm. the molecular kitchen. There's mm. a lot of that action, the cooking with liquid nitrogen and yeah. stuff like that. And it's I've eaten some of it. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah. But I, I know what you're saying. Just a bit of actual food, you know, yeah. cucumber that tastes like cucumber. Yeah, it was like I've eaten olives that have been made to look like grapes that have mm. been pulled apart and then put back together and it, like the chemical bonds have been broken and reassembled and mm. yeah. yeah. Not the scariest thing I've put in my body, but <laughs> definitely the, the scariest thing I've paid. No, Lots of money, yeah. I've put some weird things in my body <laughs> in various orifices. <laughs> Over, over time. No, I'd love to see you doing an eating show. This isn't a cooking show. This is an eating show. Uh-huh. And you just run around the world. What's that bloke? Not Thoreau, the other guy. CK. Ah, oh, Bourdain. Bourdain style. Just roll around, just smashing it. Yep. Get them to cook. They know yeah. how to cook it. Yeah, they can fucking cook. I cook enough at home. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Uh, I'd love to all see right, you. You've got the year of the networks. Get in there. An eating show. I'm actually, after this, I'm... Traveling to a meeting at the network. Really? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I've got a. I'm working on a show over there, getting a new show up. So I'll, I'll have a chat to them. When are you going <laughs> to do an eating show with Yumi Steins? Eating around the world. Eating. Eating around the world with Yumi Steins. Who'd be, who'd be your co-host? 
Well, can I tell you? Because we were actually going to pitch it. So I don't know if I should tell you because uh, then there's no there's no oomph in our pitch, is there? Chrissy Swan, you missed Dines. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. How good would it be? It'd be the greatest. Basically, when we get together, our ambition is to make each other laugh, hopefully piss ourselves laughing. So, uh, And we're both foodies. She's a mad chef as well. Uh, so we'd go around Victoria, go around Queensland, go around New South Wales, eating, drinking wine, eating food, making each other laugh. That's my idea. That's my perfect TV show. It would be amazing. Mm. Make it happen. Mm. Do you want me to pitch it this afternoon? Yeah, sure. I'll go pitch it. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go pitch it this afternoon. It'll be, uh, it'll be awesome. Um, I, I'm super grateful that you came mm-hmm. to, to, to my house to talk to me about this. I just want to make sure I asked you everything I wanted to ask you about. You've covered more than I could probably ask you to cover. Uh, two final questions. Um, what would you say to someone, because I know it happened to you, what would you say to someone who got pregnant a bit sooner than they thought they were going to get pregnant? I'd say you never regret a baby. And you're never ready for a baby. So you can't say, oh, I'm not ready now. I'll, I'll be ready in five years. Five years, you don't know what's going to be on your plate in five years. Yeah, it's there now. It's chosen you. Just go, go for it. It's the thing that will make you the happiest in your life and, and the truest and the most honest. You clucky. What would you, I guess you've already said it, when I, I was going to ask what's a kind of a lesson that you would say, but you've already said it. A lesson that I'd say for what? Uh, either yourself as a younger woman or your kids or, mm. or someone who wants to. You know, you know, a question that you and I both get asked often is, is how do I get into media? Yeah. Mm. What do you answer? I start a podcast. <laughs> Find your voice. Yeah. Because every, every person can, can make a show now. Yep. What'll make you different? There's no news that isn't beaten by the internet by mm. hours. Mm. There's no television news that can beat the internet. I know. I was looking at a magazine today just going, why are you even bothering? This is last month's news. It's so right. old. There's a billboard in LA for a uh, uh, centre-left uh, talkback station because they have that over there. They have centre-left <laughs> talkback stations. Can't be. It's amazing uh, where you listen to centre-left people have talkback. Uh-huh. Not left wing, not extreme left. It's kind of centre left. Right. It's like centrist and maybe a little just <laughs> leaning, just a little, just a tilt, a, a, a listing yeah. to the left. And the billboard says, "Honey, my newspaper is full of uh, stuff that was important yesterday." And it's really, it's true. Mm. It's true. Um, so I would say, and I was actually having this conversation with someone uh, just yesterday. I was lying on my couch there. Um, this person I've worked with before and is interested to know how they can get in. And I said, look, the thing that you need to do is just cultivate your voice mm. and, and find a way to make your voice through Twitter, through a YouTube channel, through a podcast. Um, make your voice the thing that is you mm. and the way you talk about things be the thing that is of value to yep. whoever's going to get you. And then when you go to do Eating Around the World with Yumi and Chrissy, you know what you're going to get. That's the... You're not watching for the food. You're watching for these two people having an adventure. Um, same with a camera and put it up on YouTube and see what happens. It'd be really funny. Mm. And it's super shareable. And instantly she's got a voice. She's got an opinion. Mm. And this is what you get when you see this girl. That's what the kind of show it's going to be. It doesn't matter if she's talking about dancing, ice skating, wood chipping, wood chipping. That's a great show. <laughs> <laughs> You're at Yumi Child on Twitter. Mm. What do you like about Twitter? Ah, oh, I love Twitter. 
I love Twitter. I made a hilarious joke the other day. Nobody liked it. Nobody seemed to get it. Try it on me. I'll see if I get it. Okay. I love that Brian Ferry song about abalone. (laughs) Abalone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's a good one. It's not really, but you know. It works. Yeah. It's a good, it's like this amazing testing ground for, you know, just saying stuff and I, and I really like it. And somehow the haters have dropped off and all I have is like-minded people who either half get my jokes or can top them. And I love that about Twitter. Awesome. Every now and then somebody, um, some stranger logs on and says, you are a fucking mole and I fucking hate you. <laughs> Maybe once every two months. And I just think, that's really sad that you're full of rage about a stranger block. And then it's over and I don't give it a second thought. That's pretty much exactly what I do. Mm. If you've got an egg as your logo and you've got one yeah. tweet to your name, I don't uh, forget about whatever. it. I don't even care. Mm. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, Yumi Steins, you're the greatest. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy you had me. Thanks, Osha. Without a doubt, I'm off to go and find the magical maids and mirrors. <laughs> I say that all the time when people ask what happened after you divorce. I say a lot of energy gets released around that. And you can either do one of two things. You can run around with your pants off Mm -hmm. or you can go into the magical maze of mirrors and have a long, hard look at yourself (laughs) and do some adjustments and hopefully come out the other side better for it. Yeah. Having been in two long-term relationships and having done both uh, remedies, I can guarantee you the magical maze of mirrors is a far better (laughs) path to happiness. You know, having gone through a painful breakup too, um, it, it, no matter what, it feels like a failure. No matter how overdue the breakup was or what the stakes were or what you invested and what you promised, you feel like, hang on, I set out to make that work and the fact that it hasn't, I've failed and that's a bummer. But you get a second chance of being happy. And that is what makes me very excited mm. because I see you and Mark and I'm like, dude, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, yeah. I've got such a crush on him. <laughs> such a lovely man. Thanks, Asha. I'm going to take your photo now. Ah, oh, good. Shall yeah. I put some lipstick on? Sure. So there it is. Yumi Steins, the remarkable, remarkable Yumi Steins. She's at Yumi Steins on Twitter if you, if you want to go and find her. I'll be interested to hear what you think. At Osha Ginsberg, that's where you can find me on Twitter. Let Yumi know you heard her here. Uh, if you like the show, tweet out a link to the podcast page this is on. Thank you so much for all your support. Thank you so, so much. Uh, don't forget, if you're if you're doing Movember, let me know. I'll retweet you. I'll do what I can to help get the word out. Um, hopefully my moustache will come good soon. Um, I didn't even get a chance to tell you about this week. This week was fun. Went trick-or-treating with my friend's kids. Uh, they take Halloween's really, really seriously here, as I'm sure you know. It was super-duper. And, um... I don't know. I think I found a new shrink this week. I think it's going to work out. Anyway. I take a lot of care to make sure that I'm, I keep fit. You know, I ride a lot. I'm, I'm careful about what I eat. And so I'm trying to do as much as I can to put as much effort into what goes on between my ears as well. So, um, anyway, (laughs) my buddy's blowing me up on iMessage. It's all right, Jesse, I'll get to you soon. Hey, so thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening. I love you that you're here at the end. Uh, Please let me know what you thought at Osher Ginsberg. Uh, Subscribe on iTunes, rate on iTunes, and have a really good week. 
Have an amazing week. Sleep peacefully. Dream of beautiful things. One of us should. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.